You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. Welcome into the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You are joined by thousands of photographers all listening to this show who are on the same journey to master their photography. I am your host for this episode, Jeff Harmon. Thanks so much for listening. I am solo today. I hope that's okay with everybody. Um, <laughs> we, our schedules are crazy. They have been for a long time. And um, I, I love recording the episodes every week. I love being able to share what I'm doing as I'm on my own journey to mastering photography and the things that I learn. And so I, I love doing it, but my schedule meant this week I had to do it kind of a different hour and no one else was available. So you get just me. But I thought, and I had some ideas about some things that I, I'm anxious to talk about. Some stuff I, I'm preparing for future episodes already. I have some some things I'm going to be talking about in the near future as I have a, a project that I've started. But um, I thought it'd be fun to just kind of see what you listeners wanted to hear about if you had suggestions. So I went over to the Facebook group and I went over to Twitter and I posted in both of them about like, hey, I'm going to be recording in an hour. So you all have 60 minutes to offer suggestions on what you'd like me to cover. Ready? Go. And so, so I did that. And I appreciate it. We had several people that gave suggestions on what it is they'd like to hear in this episode. I appreciate our group. I, I love our Facebook group. It's such a, a great community to be a part of. And I'm really happy that it's there. And if you aren't there, you know how to get in that. If you've listened to this podcast much, I'll, I'll say it again, just for anyone who may be a brand new listener to the show. We do have a great community. And you go over to Facebook and you search for Master Photography Podcast. You'll be able to see it. You do have to ask to join the group. We want the group to be limited to just those who are listeners. So you do have to name a host of the show, someone who's been on as a host on the on the show sometime over the last you know several years. <laughs> it can be. And uh, so Jeff will work. And if you just put in Jeff as a name of a host, I know you're a listener and we'll let you right into the group. Otherwise, we will not. And I, we still turn a lot of people away. The group is big enough and popular enough. I think Facebook recommends it to people who um, show any interest in photography, which I appreciate from Facebook that they're doing that. It hopefully leads people to become listeners of the show. But we won't let them in until they can answer that question. I, I even see people answering with, well, I just barely found the group. I'm going to go listen right now. Awesome. That's great. Go listen right now. As soon as you know the answer to that question, come back and ask to join the group. I'm not letting you in until you do that. So so there you go. Okay. So I have these uh, these responses. And some of them are going to be, I think, fairly easy answers, fairly quick answers from me anyway, about what, uh, what I'd like to do. And I'd love to have more comments on the episode as I post it into the Facebook group group or as I share it on Twitter or, as, or over on the website. There's lots of ways for you to be able to contribute to the community and be part of the community. And um, and I'd love to have more comments, more conversations, more engagement. We uh, it, It's really helpful when we have multiple voices, multiple people from different experiences, different angles to be able to talk to these subjects and uh, welcome all of that kind of interaction and engagement from our awesome community. So let's start up just at the top. I'll just go in the order that they were they were posted. Um, there's one in particular I want to spend a little bit more time on. So we'll see if I, I, I probably won't get to all of them that were there, but I'll just start it off. We'll go in order and then we'll, uh, we'll address the thing. So I'm also going to pronounce names or I'm going to attempt to pronounce names, which always gets me in trouble. Um, some of you have names that are not easy to pronounce, at least for me. So um, if I pr- mispronounce your name, I'm, I'm apologizing now. I'm sorry 
about that. I really hate it that I don't know how to pronounce some of your names. And if you want to send me a note to say like, hey, uh, this is how you pronounce it. I'm totally good with that. And I will try to remember it as we have if we have future interactions on the show. So I, I recognize a lot of the names of the people that um, that posted or responded to that Facebook group post. Um, but I don't necessarily think I pronounced all of them. So here we go. Let's let's get into the list. All right. The first one is from Brianna Miller. I think I think Brianna's a fairly new listener, but has been engaged for a bit now. Several months, if not longer. Anyway, Brianna said, I struggle a lot with editing greens in Lightroom. Is there a way about this that I'm missing? It's typically an issue when I'm photographing a family in a park where the sun is hitting the grass at sunset. So it's an ugly shade of yellow and green. Is this a white balance issue? So, Brian, I think I think there's probably three things that I can think of that we should check as possible uh, reasons you're seeing this ugly green color that that you're not liking in your image. And um, the first thing that I'd suggest you do, I'd love to be able to kind of work through this on an episode two and or part of an episode. I don't know if it would take a whole episode, but if you want to send me an image of something that you're concerned about with this green, um, it could be like, it'd be even better if it was a raw file. So if, if you do shoot raw so that I can put it in an editor and I could be able to show you kind of how I would deal with it. It's not to say it's the only way to deal with it, but you know, it's interesting to at least see another photographer work with your image and, and how do they approach it and how do they deal with the green coloring. Um, but just to give you some ideas of things that are there and, and you could you could email me um, and that's jeff at jsharmanphotos.com if you want to send that in and uh, send me a, an image of your file. Or you can just, in Facebook, you can do a message with me and, and we'll work out how to get me the image. Um, the three things that I think could be going at play here then. So one could be your camera. Um, cameras kind of have different uh, capabilities or ways that they represent color. And I don't want to turn this episode into a big thing about color science. And I really think that's a lot of bunk for the most part. Anyway, I don't think there's so much difference between cameras that like it should influence the decision you make on which camera to buy. For example, I've seen so many arguments about this and so many examples about how colors are represented and how some cameras do better than others and blah, blah, blah. If you shoot raw, I'm convinced that almost everything is fully um, correctable and changeable inside an editor with as long as you know how to use the editing tool to make that happen. And um, I don't think the camera itself is probably like an insurmountable thing. It's, it's something that's easily correctable is what I'm saying. And that includes the second thing, like you said, white balance could be part of the issue. What Whatever you're doing with white balance, is it auto white balance? Is it a specific white balance that you're setting? That absolutely could be part of this because there's the white balance that goes between green and magenta and it's kind of a fine line. It's kind of creativity too and vision and, and what you like in your colors. Um, that totally could be part of this. And so those, those two things kind of go hand in hand. The camera itself, kind of the sensor and how it does. So for example, with the sensor, Canon images are infamous for heavily oversaturating the reds frequently. And, um, and I'm always, I'm often going into the Lightroom, uh, 
develop module. There's a panel there called HSL, um, Hue, Saturation, and Luminance, HSL for short. And in there, you can just like dial down the saturation a little bit. There's also some other more advanced things in camera settings to be able to change that. Again, I don't want this episode to be focused on this so much, but totally could be part of the thing there is that you you could be shooting with the camera. So that would be information would be good to have that kind of oversaturates the greens and you need to compensate in your post-processing. The other third possibility is, are you using a calibrated screen? If you're, if the screen that you're editing on is not calibrated, then it may be that your screen also has a heavy tint to it. And that could be influencing what you're seeing too. So those are all, you know, possibilities. I don't know if any one of them is even right. I don't know exactly what you're looking at that has the green. So it'd be helpful to have kind of a reference image and see what it is you're talking about. So we could, we could go through it. I definitely have taken shots in the park where um, the green was bouncing off the grass into like their faces and making it making their faces look more green than I wanted and I still wanted the grass to be green but the faces I didn't want to be um, reflecting the green as much and and there's some things we could do with that but anyway just if you want to get me an image so that we can kind of work through that I'd, I'd love to be able to help you with that it, it sounds like a really good thing that a lot of photographers would benefit from and would make a good episode to be able to do it if you're willing to to do that all right next one up and this is going to be a name I'm going to mispronounce <laughs> and it's unfortunate because Arif I know you have been a, a engaged in the group so much so um, it's unfortunate I don't I just don't think I've ever tried to pronounce your name before but Arif Aragehi, uh, sorry, Arif, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm bad with it. Anyway, he said, I really like the format of last week's episode. I got the shot type of episode. So thanks for the feedback. Um, we had some other people like give us the thumbs up on that comment too. I'm glad to hear that because I, I love doing that. I love being able to dive into a photo I've taken, give you the whys or the, the thought process behind the photos, because it's really easy for photographers to share their settings. Some people don't even want to do that. And it's because the settings themselves are like meaningless really until you talk about the why. Why did you set your shutter speed to that? Why did you set your aperture to that? Why is the ISO set to that? What, what, why did you set up where you were in the shot? There's so many things to talk about. So I'm, I'm really glad that you all enjoyed that. And um, I'll, I'm excited and looking forward to doing some more of those. Linda Mayer. She said, what's your recommendation for an eight terabyte hard drive? I want to get an eight terabyte internal and two eight terabyte externals for backup so I can keep all my photos together. I currently have a two terabyte internal plus the smaller but faster SSD and two external four terabytes. I have to keep deleting files on the two and the fours. They're more than half full. Yeah, deleting photos is to make space. That's not a place you want to be now deleting them because you know these are not photos you're ever going to use like they're they're just not keepers. <laughs> There's no reason to clutter up my hard drive with this garbage shot, which we all have. Everyone has the, the, the most professional pro you've ever heard of. They take multiple shots and some of them are not good. And, uh, and those are not probably worth keeping around. I mean, you will have to be the judge. You are the one who's going to be able to say that. And there is some value in keeping photos that you don't think are good because technology changes all the time and your ability to edit those images and maybe pull something out of, you know, sharpen up something that wasn't as in focus as you wanted or, or changing the colors, whatever it is, there's, there's potential that in the future you might be able to make more of that image. But if it's test shots for exposure or you try to composition, you just hate it or whatever, something like that. Yeah. Keeping, 
keeping those around, there's value in freeing them up on your hard drives and getting rid of the those images that you just know are, are not, there's no reason to keep them around. Um, but to be forced into it is a totally different scenario. Forced into being like, well, I have to free up some room. This, this is getting a little tight. I gotta, I gotta go delete some images. And you might delete some that you you like. You think there's maybe potential there, or uh, you you just have a hard time deciding between a few, and you know you've got to delete some. Yeah, it's just not a place you want to be. So yeah, storage is inexpensive enough today. It's totally good to to expand it. Um, my recommendation for new listeners again here, you you might think, well, why not just buy another two terabyte drive and then just put your photos on there? You know, keep the one that's full and leave it like it is, and buy a new two terabyte drive and put it there. I think there is tremendous value in having all of your work on one drive. And so expanding the the size of the drive and then getting all your work moved over to that drive is super helpful for most photographers, especially because over time, imagine if you go, if you do this and you get say a new drive every year or every two years, and in 15 years, how many drives are you going to have? And if you need to find an image, if you have a client maybe that comes to you and says, I need, I, I do you still have this image? I really, really want to be able to print this image. I I'm willing to pay gobs of money. If you could come up with that image, how hard is it going to be to go through all of those drives to try to find it? If you, if you don't have your work all in one spot, it also gets hard to, to keep it there. Um, but eight terabyte, 10 terabyte, 12 terabyte drives are available now. And if you get them in multiples like this, so you can back things up, it's a pretty workable scenario to be able to do that. So there's a couple of principles there. I don't want to spend a lot more time on this other than that right now. Um, as far as advice, I don't think there is a huge differentiation between brands today. Um, all drives fail. So anecdotal stories that you might hear from your neighbor or something like that. Um, you may hear from a friend who had a traumatic experience with a drive. It happens because every drive will fail. And inevitably, people don't do as they should. They don't back things up. And so somebody's going to have had a bad experience with a drive. And they may tell you, don't buy Western Digital. That's It is awful. That, that drive just, it took out all of my photos and it was terrible. And someone else may say that, don't buy Seagate. Seagate's awful. It, it, it's, there's not a big differentiation between these, these manufacturers today. So uh, I would go with whatever's least expensive, honestly. Least expensive, but meet your minimum requirements. So today, I would definitely say on external, you want USB 3.0 as the minimum. Um, I don't know what computer you're running. So USB 3.0 is the safe thing that's going to be like really fast between all of them. There could be USB 3.1 options. Um, I don't think the speed difference, especially if you're talking about like long-term storage for your photos, is worth going down the path of buying something that has a faster connection to for an external drive. Um, for for this kind of stuff, I'm, I would think uh, an, an, a USB 3.0 drive is going to be plenty. Even if you need to edit from it, I, I think you're gonna, it's still going to be really good to be able to use these. So um, right now, I just went over to Amazon, did a search. The, the least expensive option that Amazon lists right now for an 8-terabyte drive 
is uh, is from Seagate. It's a Seagate desktop, eight terabyte external hard drive, USB 3.0, and it runs 135 bucks. I'll put a link in the show notes for you if that's there, if if that helps you. Uh, Western Digital, eight terabyte Elements desktop hard drive is the next option down that I see that Amazon listed, and that is uh, it's about 145 dollars. So it's about 10 bucks more. And again, I don't think there's a reason to spend the 10 dollars more on this drive to do this. It happens to be as I'm going and looking today on Amazon, the Seagate's a little less expensive. So that's the one that I would buy. As far as internal goes, um, I did a similar search. And what's interesting to me is that the internal drives are more expensive than the external drives. And uh, maybe that's uh, like a, a market demand thing. There's more people that want the externals. I, I'm not sure. But uh, interesting to me that that's the case. So what, what you might do is just buy three of those external drives and then just, you know, crack the case on one of them and take the drive out, of, out from inside of the drive and put it in your computer and use it. If you don't want to crack the case on that, um, I just searched for eight terabyte internal hard drive. And the thing that I would do in this scenario is I would look for a keyword of 7,200 RPM. So that's 7,200 RPM as the drive speed. And, um, and that's just, it, it makes a, a pretty big difference in the performance of the drive big enough. I think it is worth the extra money to do it. So as I do a search on Amazon, uh, Seagate just happens to be what it is showing first here too, is Amazon's choice, probably because of price again today. So as I did the search today, Seagate's kind of the flavor of the month for Amazon. Uh, other searches at other times, you may find Western digital or Hitachi or Toshiba, or, you know, there, there may be other brands that come up and and I I would just really kind of go based on cost on what what it is that is the least expensive as you're looking for it they may have sales you there could be situations like that the first one that Amazon suggested as an 8 terabyte drive even though I included the words 7200 rpm in my search they still suggested a 5400 rpm drive now I'm not going to say that that's like a, a, a such a terrible choice you shouldn't consider it because it might be okay especially if this is for long-term storage and you're not intending to do a ton of work off this drive. If you're going to do a workflow where you're going to import your photos to a really fast SSD drive, which has some good benefits, it really can improve your experience in using Lightroom and Photoshop and doing editing of your photos, then... um, then a 5400 RPM drive that you're going to put it on once you're done with the edit of that shoot and you're going to move it from the SSD drive off to something that's going to be less expensive, bigger storage and keep all your photos in one spot, then this 5400 RPM drive will be great. It happens to be $155, so it's like $10 more than the more expensive external drive that I just talked about, which again is why why not just crack open the the case and then you can grab the drive out and put it in there in your computer. Um, then the next option down is one, it says it's for enterprise and it is quite a bit more. It's about 40 more dollars. So the, the percentage cost, um, is, is a lot higher, but it is a 7,200 RPM drive. It's designed for enterprises too, which there's an advantage because that means the drive is really designed to last longer. And, um, that might be something that, that is worth the extra expense in this case to be able to buy. Um, either one would be good. The Seagate Exos, uh, eight terabyte internal hard drive, six gigabit, 7,200, six gigabit a second and 7,200 RPM drive. 
um, is $190. So I'll put links to, to all these things in the show notes. Again, I wouldn't be opposed to like Western Digital as a brand. I think they're fine. There are certain models that ha- end up having some trouble. And I follow Backblaze, the data that they publish to be able to see that. They, they publish information about drives that have really high rates of failure. I looked at that report before going here just to make sure there wasn't one I need to avoid. And they all in the eight terabyte range, they, they all seem to be about the same on failure rates. So again, every drive will fail. So please don't think of it like, oh, this, this drive that I'm looking at is going to fail uh, or has failed or the anecdotal stories from friends or whatever to influence you tremendously. But I'll put some links in the show notes for you, Linda, so that you can um, decide what you're going to do there. But I I really think uh, any of those options would be just fine and solve your problem. All right. Mark McEwen, he said, maybe some ideas for fall shoots. And Mark, that feels like a big topic to me. Um, I think we're going to save that one. <laughs> we're going to save that one for a little later. I want to be able to, uh, to talk with, uh, I want to get Brent or uh, some others on too. And, and we'll talk about those. It's, it's such a challenging year. 2020 is different. And, uh, I think we're going to have to be creative about getting out there. Now, landscape photographers, it's business as usual for you. Most likely you, uh, you can put a mask on, you can social distance yourself and you can get out there and shoot and, and uh, it shouldn't be an issue. But if you're a portrait photographer, or if you do sports or uh, almost any other work, uh, you're facing some challenges this year and it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. So that's a, a bit of a loaded question. I think Mark, good one, but a bit of a loaded question and I'm going to skip it for this episode. <laughs> All right. Dita horse said probably too nerdy to make listener friendly, but a seven S three global shutter versus fast readout. It probably deserves a little more time than I want to give it here, Dieter. Um, what he's talking about here is global shutter is where the camera actually reads the entire, all of the sensor at once versus what almost every DSLR or mirrorless camera does today, where it reads it line by line or may do like a skip line, every other line um, reading and then start at the top and, and every other line. Those... Um, there's ups, there's, there's pros and cons to both approaches. And I think we should give that kind of its own topic to Dieter, or maybe that's something I'll try to tackle on photo taco in the future. Cause it is probably a little too nerdy here for master photography podcast, but thank you for the question Dieter and all your engagement. I know you've been very involved in our community. Uh, Andy Gatchel and Andy, I'm sorry if I pronounced your last name incorrectly, said, scratched rear element, how can you tell? And what do you do about it? So uh, scratched rear element or scratched front element, you want to avoid it for sure. You want to avoid getting those things scratched. But, and, and that's why your lenses come with a rear cap and a front lens cap. And, you know, to protect that, especially while it's in your bag, so that you don't have things bump up against them and scratch those, those elements. Those elements are what you, that's like the bulk of the lens, what you're paying for is the glass that's there, the coatings on the front, especially, and all of the effort it takes to get those, the glass made into the lens that it is. So babying those things is probably a really good idea. My own experience, I started off with those lens caps on. I made sure to put the rear cap on and made sure to put the lens cap on the front as I put it in my bag. And I tried really hard. I mean, I spent so much money on this as I got into photography. It just, they were my 
babies and and I want to make sure I babied them because they were my babies. And um, over time, I lost lens caps various places. I don't know where they go. There must be some kind of lens cap place in the world <laughs> where all the lens caps go because I think everyone kind of experiences the same thing that you're like, I know I had that this morning. Where is that lens cap? It is gone. It's not in my bag. It's not in my pocket. And it's just gone. Um, so I've lost them. And what I've come to, and I've heard it said from other photographers too, was these things are far more resilient than most photographers give them credit for. Now, I'm not suggesting you should abuse them. I'm not suggesting you should take your keys out and go, you know, rough up the front element or the back element of your lens right now. Of course not. That's You, you want to do everything you can to take care of your equipment. And if you have your caps and you, you really want to do the best you can to protect them, putting those caps on is going to be one of the best ways that you can make sure they're protected when they're not in use. For sure, you should do that. But if you don't have them, I don't think it's the end of the world. Um, in fact, I my my own personal lookout on this. I I would rather get the shot, and having those caps on my lenses is just slow enough. It could make it that I I'd have a few few less time with my shot than I want. So to me, it's a trade off I'm willing to make that I no longer put either of those caps on my lenses, even when they go in the bag, because I want to be able to, as quick as I can, take it out of my bag, put it on my camera. If it's not already on, like if I need to switch lenses for the, whatever I'm shooting, I want to make that as fast as I can possibly get it. And the lenses have proven over time to be resilient enough that even if they get tiny little scratches on them, uh, it doesn't end up really impacting your images almost at all. There are situations where like the sun can hit it just right and make a scratch a little more visible. You might see more, a little more lens flare there. Uh, the coatings probably can get rubbed off. Like they, they have some, uh, they've spent a ton of research and development on those coatings on the front elements in particular that, um, you know, in my bag, my bag kind of rubbing against the the front element there is probably not good. But I also store most of my lenses. Most of the time, they have their lens cap on them too, or sorry, the the uh, lens hood on the front element. So it's not like I usually have anything directly contacting the front element anyway. So um, it can take a lot of abuse, is my point. And it we often, most of the time, I have I've rarely seen it where it ends up affecting your images. So it would take something pretty big, like a major chip out of the glass, I would say, to make it so that it really becomes a significant problem. So I have been doing using a lot of lenses for many years now. I haven't been putting my caps on when I put them away. And I have yet to see anything show up where I was like, oh no, that image got ruined because I had a scratch on it, on the element. So, you know, for what it's worth, you need to decide how you're going to deal with it. It's your equipment. It's the money you spent on that gear and how you're going to take care of it. But this is something I just don't worry about myself. So that that's my opinion. You need to decide how you're going to deal with it and what you're going to do. And like you said, how can you tell? That's the point. You mostly can't. At least in my experience, I haven't had any time where I've been able to see that that tiny scratch in either front or rear element ended up being a, a really big deal. All right. Richard Chang said, uh, is October retreat in South Carolina canceled? 
A very good question, Richard. As of this recording, I believe the the retreat is still on and still planned for in South Carolina. They do have some big changes they have to make. Um, We had a certain group size that we were shooting for. It was several hundred. I believe it has to be limited to something like 60 now. Um, It's... It's still it's still planned for, but there may still be time that it's going to change. I, I, we have to be fluid here. This is a you know all all of our first pandemics, I think. So we got we have to give people some slack and and figure out what to do. Um, I did have to make the decision that unfortunately I am not going to be participating in the retreat this year. It pains me to say that. It really was not an easy decision. It's not something that um, that I wanted to give up. It just wasn't going to work out for uh, my family and, and what we have going on this year and the pandemic considerations in place and and everything that's that's happening. So um, I'm I'm a, not able to join the retreat this year, even though it's one of my most favorite things that happens every year. It really is. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in just a second. Because that's Josh Peterson's thought, and that's I want to save that for what I'm going to talk about at the end of the episode, take a little more time on. Let's see if we can get through a couple more quickly. I actually am almost all the way through the list. So next was uh, Nelson Charette. Charette. Oh, I'm sorry, Nelson. <laughs> he said, the select subject feature seems to work better in Photoshop, and Lightroom does seem faster after, after the update. And then, so that's one thought. And then the second thought was, since the pandemic, are people starting to get out and shoot again? That's all for now. Thanks. So great. Thanks, Nelson, for contributing and engaging in the community. I have to agree. And the reason I wanted to make sure I talked about this one was I just recently in a photo project I'm working on, um, I retried on the very most current version of Photoshop, which is not Photo Taco approved yet, by the way. But the very most recent uh, version of Photoshop, I did the select object. Um, I actually used the remove background button. And it did a phenomenal job. Um, not perfect. I still had to do some touch-up of the mask that it created to remove the background. But wow, was it an excellent, excellent start. And uh, it, it's it's really, really improving. I'm, I'm so excited to see the development that Adobe's got with their AI-based stuff that's coming and, and how they're working on that. To me, that's... That's where Adobe needs to be doing things like this. They're they're big enough they can actually tackle topics like that or technology like that and put that into their products. All of us as subscribers, they kind of need to do that. And it's working really, really well. Uh, as far as Lightroom goes, they had to, a new update. It's also not PhotoTaco approved yet. Um, I'm still working through testing to see how I like it, but, uh, I'm glad to hear Nelson that it was a little faster for you. And then as far as the pandemic and people starting to get out and shoot again, uh, let me know, are you guys getting out to shoot it? I have had a few opportunities. I did. I went on a family vacation of sorts. We, we escaped to Southern Utah. We could drive there. We could make sure we could control our environment pretty well. And, uh, and so we, we got away and had some fun and, and I got to do do some photography, which was very 
rewarding. I loved it. Uh, I've also been out to shoot the moon recently. So it's mostly landscape work that I've done recently, though at the beginning of the pandemic, I did have a whole bunch of like senior portraits and some work like that, that we had to do. So I've kind of been out um, most of the way through anyway, um, maybe a little less than normal, but I've still been out. But uh, what's what's your experience, everyone? Let, let me know. Let, let us know in the Facebook group or over in uh, Twitter or the, the comments on the page. And are you getting out? Are you shooting or are you just kind of uh, nervous to do it or let us know? Um, okay. Next one, Jules Dupree says composition, good resources for learning more about this color theory, visual weight triangles, and such. This is one of the things I love teaching at the retreat. I've gone through, uh, for the last couple of years, I go through a bunch of photo examples of things that I did so that I could get better composition. And on this recent family trip that I just went on, as we were going around Arches National Park and seeing some of the sites that are inside of that park, just an amazing landmark that we have there. Uh, I was framing up things and I was taking like bad examples to good examples or better examples uh, along the way in anticipation of using it in a future course so that I could do it. They weren't stellar images and that's kind of on purpose because I want to show how it's not the lighting, it's not uh, it's not the other factors that are involved that are making them better because that it's pretty obvious when the light is better that it's a better image. It's the same kind of midday lighting. It's what the time of day I was there. So, um, and, and I was just showing how changing the composition, changing the angle, changing the view can really help. So again, that's probably like a more effective when you can have visual things that are in there. You're asking for resources to be able to help with that. Um, I would have said Jim Harmer's course um, would have been a good one. I don't think he's selling it anymore. I learned a lot from his course that I did. And um, he, he called it uh, block, block composition, I think. Anyway, he's not really selling that anymore. So um, I'm not sure of a really good source for that. So if, if people have suggestions, uh, let me know and, uh, and I'll share, I'll pass that along to Jules. Uh, and then Aaron Carr said moving Lightroom CC photo catalog onto an SSD from an HD on a Mac. And, um, I have a resource over at photo taco for that. So there's, there's a, the, there's several ways that you can move a catalog and the images so that it'll work. Um, the good news is a catalog just kind of works. You can just move the catalog file from one drive to another drive. Then you launch Lightroom, load up that new catalog where the new location of the catalog. And then you do have to kind of repoint. If you didn't move the photos with it, then you need to repoint um, Lightroom to where the photos are now. And, but that's a very simple thing. You can just right click like, a, especially as long as you've maintained the organization of your folders, then you can right click on in Lightroom in the library module, right click and say, um, you know, missing photos and, and update the location. And it just, it just magically does it all. If everything's under one single folder, it's really easy. Uh, but I'll, I'll point you to those resources in the show notes, Aaron, so you can see what it is that you can get help with there. All right. So with that, I am going to go to the one that I skipped along the way from Josh Peterson. And I want to spend a little bit more time on this question in this episode. And he said, what's the most fun that you've had doing photography related stuff? And this is a hard question for me because photography is my escape. It's my hobby. It's the thing that I do 
uh, every moment I can possibly get a chance. I don't do it enough. I wish I could do it more. Although if I got the opportunity or tried to make it my business, I think it would become less fun for me. So I really like what it's doing for me in my life right now. Uh, It's a very positive thing in my life, something that I just enjoy doing almost always. So a singular moment where it's been the most fun is tough for me to decide. I I really enjoy uh I enjoy getting out in the world and hiking around and getting earning those landscape shots, getting myself in a position to be able to take a fun landscape shot. I that's that's very uh good for me in at multiple levels. I love the photography aspects, I love the getting outdoor aspect. Um I love like, you know, I'm breathing good air and <laughs> all of those kinds of things are really helpful and and something that I love to do. I enjoy taking um photos of people because I can see the smiles on their faces, how much they love the photos, um, how much they love the memories that are captured for them. And I, it, it just brings me a lot of joy to see that too. And, and I love being able to help a family capture a moment in time for them so that they can be able to enjoy that moment for years to come. It's really fun for me to do that. Seniors, um, I mostly don't do weddings. <laughs> uh, the time factor being the biggest one, I, I don't want to have all of my weekends be spent doing photography for other people. I'd rather go do hiking around in uh, here in Utah, and especially there's so many places I could go on weekends to have fun and do that. Um, but I also have I have a demanding day job. I have a uh, I have two teenage children in our house that are super busy and involved in a lot of different things, and super important to me that I'm supporting them. And uh, and then I, I'm very active in my church, and so. I, it means I don't have that much time for photography and every moment I can, I'm out there doing it to enjoy it. It's easier for me. Okay. I guess the other thing I I should say the most fun apart from shooting my own projects or creating those memories with families, the the thing I really enjoy, and I've I've been doing this uh, now in a, in a course we've been teaching from our house over the last three weeks, we've, we've done three weeks of the class. Now I'm teaching uh, people how to use their cameras. I'm, I'm starting at the very beginning, like, let's make sure you know how to turn it on. Let's make sure you know how to take care of your camera. Let's talk about what the pieces of your camera are, what their names are. And then we've gone through the exposure triangle over the last three weeks. And I, it's so fun for me to teach photography to other people. The the joy I see come across their face when they first take an image that they're really proud of is, is so fun to see. It's almost, I might enjoy it even more than when I create a really good photo. Um, helping someone else to do it just makes me so happy. It's why it's it's just so painful for me that the retreat isn't going to work out for me this year to to get there because yeah, I love that interaction. I love being able to help other people learn how to improve the images that they're creating and it's it's just so much fun. Um there so maybe the the way I'll approach your question isn't the most fun, but it is what's been like the least fun <laughs> I've had with photography. 
and it's it's also hard to, for me to come up with a, a time when I haven't liked it because um, I have tried a lot of genres of photography. I've tried to expand my skill set by trying lots of different things, and it's I mostly liked it. It's been fun. It's been a challenge and stretching. And I kind of like that anyway, like even in my professional life and the things I do there, stretching myself and learning and growing, uh, that's, that's what I enjoy doing. So it's, that's super fun for me. Um, the, the one genre of photography that comes to mind as one that I just didn't appreciate very much. (laughs) I'm trying to be kind of politically, I I have a ton of respect for photographers who can do this because I really can't, um, as newborn photography. So (laughs) I've tried my hand at it a few times, mostly for family. I have, I have family that have, when they've had babies, you know, we say, Hey, we'd love to come and try, try to get fun images. Um, First off, the environment is miserable. You're usually cramped into this tiny little space where the baby can be relaxed and comfortable. And um, it needs to be super warm. If you have any chance of having that baby not be miserable and crying, it needs to be super, super warm. And that means I'm going to be too hot. And I just, I hate being hot. I really just like it. It's, it's one of the things that keeps me indoors a lot in the summer because when it's 102 degrees outside here in Utah, even though it's a, a not a humid 102, but it's still 102 is so hot. I hate the heat. I just hate the heat. I'll do everything I can to not have heat. And, uh, and I, it's just not a fun environment for me to shoot in. And I just wasn't very good at it. I think I'm just like too big of a person to make it so that I can get in there and, and really do a good job with it. Uh, I am amazed by people who can do a really good job with newborn photography. So my hat off to all of you newborn photographers, the, because you are amazing. <laughs> you are really, really amazing. I am not good at it and I just don't really want to be because it's just not, I didn't have fun doing that. Um, other than that, the only other experiences where I haven't had fun would be something like where I put a ton of effort into something and then it, it was a failure and that's happened a lot. It's, it's happened a bunch. Now, most of the time I can look at it like, well, I learned a lot. I learned what not to do. Failure is a really good way to learn what not to do. And, um, most of the time that's the case, but there have been some shoots where I was so sure that I knew how to create the image that I was, I was looking to create. And then I, the disappointment that comes, cause like, you know, on the back of the camera, even at, in the shoot, I'm like, yep, I got it. This is perfect. This is going to work only to come get on the computer and look at it and say, actually not a single one of these is what I wanted. It's not sharp enough or whatever problem there is with it. And I just like, well, I got to do it again. I got to, I got to try this again. And it hasn't happened a ton, but it has happened. And I think if you talk to any photographer, if they're going to be real with you, they're going to tell you that they've had times like that too. They've had moments where that has been a problem and it's, it can be super discouraging if it happens a lot and it may happen a lot. Um, I, it's a challenge and, and having good experiences come out of that is, is hard. Um, but I, for the most part, I've been able to 
look at it as a learning experience. And then I go and try again. And I learned from it enough that I was able to do a better job of making sure I had what I needed as I did it. And most of the time it was early on where I gave up too early. I took photos and I'm like, yep, I nailed it. I've got it. And then I would just like stop taking photos. And I've kind of learned that what I need to do is just keep taking shots. As long as I have light, as long as I have a subject worth taking photos of, as long as people are willing to take photos, whatever it is, um, you know, take them until like you can't anymore and you got to go. Then I have more material to use and I learn more and I'm able to, um, get more creative. Yeah. I have more angles, more views, uh, taking the, you know, going to going someplace and taking 10 shots, like, yep, I got it is where I've run into problems and run into trouble for myself. Um, not spray and pray. That's not what I'm saying. You don't just have to take, you know, 4,000 images and hope and pray that one of them's going to work, but, um, with purpose and, and trying different unique things, trying new gear, new equipment on it is too, a, another thing that makes it fun to, to be able to expand on things. And, uh, but for the most part, um, it's just been super fun, almost anything I've tried. And I, I really enjoy just doing it all the time. It's so, so much fun. I still get that like twinge of excitement when I might be like walking through my house and looking outside and seeing that mother nature is just putting on a show right now. And I'm so fortunate to be living in an area where there's just beautiful hills all around me. And, um, I can get a, even though I'm in the middle of a suburbs of, of the Salt Lake Valley here in Utah, um, I can work my compositions so that I mostly end up with nature in the photography rather than the city and include, you know, beautiful skies and sunsets. And it still happens every time I look out and and notice that the sunset is just stunning. I run to grab my camera and I get out there and I try to shoot it. And most of the time I miss it because the peak was what I saw before I grabbed my camera. I hadn't been planning to do the shoot. And, um, and then it just pains me like, oh, dang it. I wish I'd have been out here like 20 minutes earlier. That would have, <laughs> would have been much better to be able to do that. Um, and, and my neighbors know that now enough that like, if they see it, they text me now and say, you need to get out there. You got to go, <laughs> you got to go get this shot, uh, which I super appreciate because it's so much fun. And, and that, I don't know if that's ever going to get old. I, I don't think it will be. I just enjoy it all the time. I love being able to do it. And, um, and I hope you listening find that too. I hope it comes through in the episodes as I'm talking about this, about my passion for it, how much I enjoy it, and that I can help you to be able to, um, you know, move yourself down that path. We talk about it all the time because it's kind of the premise for the, the show overall, helping you to move down the path towards mastering your photography. Uh, I hope the subjects that we talk about, the things that that we, the tips that we give, and are, are helping you to move down that road. And I, and I hope that you'll engage. If if someone is asking questions about something you have gone through and you've learned about and you grew, I hope you'll you'll feel like you can share that and be able to talk to them and and support them in a supportive way. Not saying you know like, hey dummy, you should have done this, but saying you know. 
for me, this is how I would have approached the shot. And you might try that next time or, uh, you know, a supportive kind of influence and engagement is what we're looking for with our community. And I hope that comes through in the episodes. Um, I also hope that it doesn't come off as our team here at Master Photography saying we are masters because I think all of us believe that we are all very much learning and growing. And, and if we're not, we're not getting better. And I don't ever want to be in that spot. I don't want to ever be in that place. So I, I, I know I have a lot to learn still. And I, I'm just excited that I can do this for a long, long time. It's my retirement plan. I've talked about that on the show before too. Uh, I am very much looking forward to the day that I can put the the day job behind me and uh, retire, not replace it with another day job, but just retire and do more photography for me or the things that I like doing. I I do enjoy really taking like family portraits and and helping people to create those memories that are going to last a lifetime for them. And, uh, and so I, I would still love to, to do that even after I retire from my day job. Um, but I don't want to make it my main job, my, my, the, the income for, for photography. I like keeping it, I like it like it is for me right now in being able to have it be just a really fun hobby that I happen to tell the world about every week <laughs> in these episodes and how I approach it. Um, so, so there you go. Um, I, I hope that answered your question, Josh, in, uh, what I think is the most fun I've done with photography related stuff. It's like all fun, except newborns. <laughs> newborns for me anyway. I really don't like that. So uh, so there you go. That's, uh, that's all I had for this episode. I want to thank all of you that engaged to make this episode happen today. I think it was fun for me to be able to see what, what kinds of questions that you had. I think we have a couple of topics that we may have to have follow-up episodes on. And uh, maybe we'll do this again in uh, every so often. If I'm going to be on a solo episode, maybe I'll just see what is it you guys would like to hear me talk about. And, and we can do that. And uh, you can let me know if you hated it too. <laughs> it's okay. I can take it. I have a thick skin. If you're like, that was a useless episode, let me know so that I can uh, you know decide if I get a, a lot of people that say that was useless, um, then maybe we won't do it again. But let me know either way, which way you like it or if you don't. And uh, I, I really hope you all enjoyed it. You can find me over at jsharmanphotos.com. And um, that's where my work is. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Plus, I have my other podcast. So it's phototacopodcast.com. And I tackle, I tackle, I tackle, I don't know how that came out. I tackle some really uh, technically focused topics and I try to break them down and make it something that everybody can understand. And, uh, and I think I'm mostly successful. Sometimes I am not. And I love to have questions provided there. Um, in the most recent episode, or I'm, I'm planning a new episode. The next episode is going to actually be a far more detailed, uh, thought process on how I got the shot with some of the moon photos that I've taken in particular so that, uh, I can share kind of, I'm even going to put into the show notes, the kind of images that went into it and, and like the compositing process I used to, to put them together. So if you're interested in, if you liked last week's episode, how I got the shot, I promised 
just a very a much more detailed uh, episode, and I'm going to do that over at Photo Taco soon. You can find the show over at masterphotographypodcast.com, and uh, all the show notes are going to be there. You can be able to find show notes for it, a lot of the episodes and be able to uh, to get any of the links we talked about in this episode. And uh, that's, that's going to be it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you all again in another seven days. Bye.